I did try and fuck her. I moved on her heavily. In fact, I took her out furniture shopping. She wanted to get some furniture. I said, I'll show you where they have some nice furniture. I moved on her like a bitch, but I couldn't get there. She, and she was married. I've got to use some Tic Tacs, just in case I start kissing her. You know, I am automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. Just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Grab them by the pussy. You can do anything. He kissed her then, on the lips, for real. He came for her in a kind of lunging motion and practically poured his tongue down her throat. It was a terrible kiss, shockingly bad. Margot had trouble believing that a grown man could possibly be so bad at kissing. It seemed awful, yet somehow it also gave her that tender feeling toward him again. The sense that even though he was older than her, she knew something he didn't. Hello and welcome, I'm Douglas Falls and this is 42 Minutes, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of art. A production of SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Tuesday, December 12, 2017 and this morning we'll consider getting off without checking out. And we'll do so with author and teacher Jessica Graham. Graham, actor, sexuality, and intimacy coach and award-winning filmmaker, has been teaching meditation since 2009 and is a contributing editor to the meditation blog Deconstructing Yourself, in which her popular series Mindful Sex appears. She co-founded the Los Angeles Eastside Mindfulness Collective dedicated to exploring secular spirituality through mindful living and learning. In her most recent book, Good Sex, published this past November by North Atlantic Books, Graham demonstrates that a deep spiritual life and an extraordinary sex life are not mutually exclusive in this keenly personal and unflinchingly frank guide to finding mindfulness in sex without losing the fun and adventure. Not only a toolkit for creating a rich and deeply satisfying sex life, this playful, explicit, and transformative book conveys the deeper message of how combining meditation with sex can bring about profound spiritual awakenings. Graham discusses everything from open-eyed orgasms to threesomes to how to deal with a partner with a low sex drive. From a sex-positive and non-traditional stance, Good Sex explores non-monogamy, the benefits of pornography, sexual trauma, consent, and much more. More information about her and her work can be found at her website, yourwildawakening.com. Good morning, Jessica. How are you doing today? Good morning. Thanks for having me. I'm doing great. Great. Well, uh, I never know how to start, but let's just start superficially. This book just on the surface is so beautiful. Did you have anything to do with the uh, the actual design? Oh, thank you. Um, I definitely, uh, my opinion counted in the in the decisions there. Um, the designer's name is uh, Debbie Byrne, and she just she's just such a talented woman. I've, I've seen a number of her covers and interior designs and they're all just, just beautiful. And I, I couldn't be happier with it. I, when I actually saw it for real, I was like, Oh my goodness, this is, this is really nice. It's a real book and it's beautiful. (laughs) But not only that, it just kind of, it, it, kind of reminds me of the kind of book you'd find like in 1968 or, you know, like the early seventies, this kind of, it, it seems so dignified, but at the same time, you know that it's kind of naughty, too. 
Yes, that's exactly what we were going for. We wanted to nod at uh, the Joy of Sex. So the font is very, very similar uh, to the Joy of Sex font, which I actually used to read as a kid. I would sneak into my parents' bedroom and find the book and read it. And so it's kind of awesome that the font of my book on sex is similar. Well, so, yeah, and I had, you know, similar experiences. I wonder about kids in the age of the internet and if they, you know, how they discover information or, I mean, so books have so much compression and there's just so much there. I wonder if, as a teacher, do you have any, any uh, sense of how younger folks explore these kind of topics? Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. I was just having this conversation online last night. Someone was asking how, how young is too young to have sex? And I didn't really answer that question. What I said instead was sex positive, comprehensive sex positive sex ed should begin in kindergarten. And I think it should begin then in, you know, obviously in a a kindergarten level, but then I think each year through, through school, it should be added onto. And by the time we get into high school, we should be talking about sexual pleasure and we should be talking about consent in some very real explicit ways. But I think pleasure and consent and all the other aspects of good sex should be, should be talked about at a young age because otherwise we do leave our kids to go online or to talk to older friends and who knows what they're picking up. And I think the more that we can be really sex positive, and that doesn't mean you you want your kid to have sex at age 14 like I did, um, but if they are going to have sex at age 14, we want them to know that uh, consent is number one, it's part of safe sex, and we also want them to understand about pleasure and what it what it is and how that works. Yeah, that, it's interesting because it seems like uh, I, I think I've read a lot of kind of reports about how young men, their whole sexual practice or whatever you call it, just the, they have this idea that pornography sex is how sex is. And so, you know, people write about how odd that is. Yes. And it's one of the, one of the downsides of pornography, of course, but I think it starts at home. And I think if kids know about porn at age 10 and they understand what ethical porn is and what non-ethical porn is, which is most of it, then they're going to make better choices. The same way we teach our kids about healthy food, the same way we teach our kids about, you know, spiritual practice or whatever the belief system is of the family. I think we should teach our kids about porn because Everybody watches it, almost everybody, and kids definitely watch it. I mean, I remember trying to watch it when the internet pretty much just came out. <laughs> so I know that kids are are watching it, and I have clients and friends contact me when they find out their kids are watching it, and I say, hey, talk to them about it. Teach them what ethical porn is. Teach them about pleasure. Teach them about how porn's made and that that's not real life. And I think if that was done, and I know this, I'm talking about some ideal, some utopia, but if that was done, I don't think that porn would have this effect on on young boys that it clearly is having. Well, so you, that you spend quite a bit of time in the book with uh, around that idea. What is ethical porn for our listeners who may not know? 
Yeah. So ethical porn, it's same way if you think about buying eggs and you want to go and you want to buy the, not just the cage free, but the pasture raised eggs, because then you know the chickens were treated well, they had good lives and these are clean eggs. You want to do the same thing with porn. You want to know where it came from, who made it. Um, you want to pay for it. If you're not paying for your porn, most likely it's not ethical. Now, many sites will give you um, a, a sneak sneak peek, but Pornhub and places like that, that is a lot of really unethical porn. And I don't mean the content, but I don't care what content you want to watch. I want to know, is it consensual? Are the performers being treated with integrity and respect? Are they being paid for what they're doing? Um, are they getting reasonable breaks? Are they all of that, right? Like, are they being treated well? And that if that's the case, then most likely your porn's ethical. There's and there's different tips I give you in the book for finding ethical porn. One of them is to follow some of the performers online and notice which films they will plug. Because if they had a horrible experience with a producer on set or something, they're probably not going to plug the film. And so you, you you just have to do a little research. And um, one of my favorite ethical porn companies is called Four Chambers. They do this beautiful, beautiful art porn. I mean, it's just gorgeous. Now, that's not going to be everybody's cup of tea. Someone might want uh, really hardcore BDSM porn. There's tons of ways to find that or anything else you're into and still keep it ethical. Well, and so that kind of speaks to, for a long time, porn is kind of directed at the male gaze. So there mm -hmm. is this sense that part of it is, well, I mean, so like this is going to be the heart of our conversation, I think, just because of the moment that, that's going on. With, sure. Um, but I... One of the thoughts that I'm always trying to get to the root of is the nature of male sexuality and if it if this is something that is rooted in our genes like mm -hmm. and this is moving towards the idea of why do dirty old men behave the way they do or mm -hmm. is this something cultural and then we need to explore the idea of the patriarchy and the notion of of property somehow that uh, sex becomes a tool in in the service of um, you know just maintaining property where where mm -hmm. marriage is thought of as property too. Do you have any do you have any thoughts about this? Like why why are why are there so many dirty old men? And this isn't a new phenomenon. <laughs> <laughs> What's the deal? Yeah, I mean, I think it's cultural. I think, um, sure, if there's a biological aspect of it, fine, but we're very advanced creatures. We can evolve and we are evolving. And so I don't think this idea of that's just men and that's how the cavemen were and that's how men are, I don't think that can really apply at this point. We have way too much knowledge. We have way too much, way too many resources. We don't need to to be like, oh, it's just my biology, so I act this way. Uh, I think culturally, uh, and it's really coming, becoming really clear at this point where we are culturally, and it's it's uh, it's changing people's lives. It's changing my life. It's changing my experience of my own book, honestly. And I think uh, as we start to see more and more of this shadow of sexuality and of male sexuality. Um, 
we have more and more of an opportunity to start to change it. And so conversations like this, I think, are a big part of it. Something I see that I think doesn't help is the public shaming of men. Um, even Harvey Weinstein, for example, uh, yes, he should be punished. Yes, he should never be able to work again in, in that business. But should we shame him and make him a villain? I don't think so. I don't think that's the most um, productive way to, to deal with this situation because shame shuts people down. And when I hear about someone like Louis C.K. masturbating at some woman, I don't think, what a horrible, dirty old man. I think, wow, what a suffering person. This person is suffering so much and must have been suffering for so long to be doing this. And so, yes, there are consequences that need to be, need to be taken. There's consequences that need to happen, but we don't need to do the shaming part. I don't think it helps at all. And that's the other component of your book that makes it so powerful is this idea of mindfulness, forgiveness, compassion. So, and the, it, when, whenever there's a monster you know, in the, in the news where you see somebody who does these horrific things. And then mm -hmm. my first thought is, how did they become this monster? And, you know, of course, they're responsible for their actions, but then we as a society are responsible for creating this monster on some level too. You know exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and it's, it's, there's a parallel with this and the show that's out right now on Netflix, M Mindhunter. Have you seen it? I haven't seen it. It's it's on the list, but we haven't yeah. done that one yet. <laughs> it's quite good. And basically it explores um, the sort of discovery of the serial killer. And what they're finding out is, oh, these aren't just, you know, horrible people or dirty old men. They are, uh, they were made. And they were made by um, the culture. They were made by their upbringing. Most of them were abused in some horrific way. And so... I see the same thing happening now. It's like there's this idea of, and, there, and there's a lot of resistance in the show, like a lot of resistance to thinking about these killers in this more integrated, holistic way. And I see that happening now with, with the perpetrators of all of these horrible sexual crimes. Of course they're not happy individuals. I would say very few of them are true sociopaths. I think our president is probably a true sociopath, but I don't think Harvey Weinstein is. I don't think Louis C.K. is. I, I don't know about Kevin Spacey, but like I, I just think these are really hurt people, and hurt people hurt people. Hmm. Well, so then, the animating, so a, a society is kind of built on stories, like a mythology, and even though we seem to be so... Uh, beyond the idea of mythology we still have kind of these abrahamic religions at our core as a spiritual teacher what i mean so i i kind of feel like part of part of our hurt comes from some of these things that don't necessarily make sense for us anymore as a people i wonder do you have any thoughts about that can you can you clarify a little more what you mean I don't know if I can. I mean, it's it's just this idea of, so you explore some really shocking things to some people, like the idea, I mean, for traditional a traditional mindset, monogamy is the only way that marriage is this kind of contract, like sex is this part of the contract that mm -hmm. 
if you're going to enter into this agreement with another person, this is this is the only way. And mm. part of our mindset about why this is the only way, I think, comes from this notion of, you know, this set of stories that our culture is built upon. Right. Okay. I see what you're saying. So, so yeah, I think the mythology and the stories are important and they're an important part of being human. Storytelling has been going on forever. Um, and it's what we're doing right now too. We're both telling stories, stories made out of, uh, thoughts and emotions. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that's what makes up a self, the thoughts and the emotions. And that's where a story comes from. And it's powerful. Thoughts and emotions are powerful. I'm also an actor. So I deeply believe in story, but as a spiritual teacher on the flip side, I don't believe in story at all. Um, I think it's all just mental and emotional phenomena that's arising and passing. Now, we've built up over many, many years these different archetypes, these different um, belief systems in order to make sense of being a human. And I get it. And um, and it makes people feel like there's solid ground when in fact there is no solid ground. And I get that. I get that people need that. I certainly needed it in the past. Um, I think what folks will see as they start to really dive into their spiritual practice and start to have some awakenings, they'll start to say, oh, wow, most of these stories are not all that helpful. Most of these stories are not all that functional. Most of these stories don't make my life better. They actually create more sense of separation instead of more recognition of connection and unity. And so I think it is our responsibility to look at the stories and learn what we can from them, but in the same breath also recognize that they are simply story. Hmm. Well, it definitely seems like like there is some – so part of what you're talking about is this kind of like unattachment, you know, this, this idea, it's almost the Buddhist philosophy where when we get attached to things, that's when things become blocked and that's when suffering begins to happen. And so in thinking about the dirty old men, some, something is causing this suffering that they're acting out upon. And so I wonder, it does seem like sex is one of these key human activities that really could tell a different story because it it feels like uh, when girls first came out all these it seemed like all the popular writing about it was so gawky about these these young people having sex and and Mm -hmm. so it just seemed so uh titillating but then Mm. As the show kind of went on, you realize, no, this is this is an expression of a different mode of life that is both exciting and adventurous and uh, substantive and mindful on some levels, too. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, sex, birth, sex, and death. I mean, these are the big human experiences. <laughs> and uh, we... Our birth in general is very sterile and very kind of disconnected. Now, I grew up raised by these like beautiful and terrible wolves. I was totally just like a wolf child. And we were all born at home with the same midwife. And I learned about birth and saw my first birth at age two. Mm. So to me, birth was this like beautiful and terrifying and organic and alive experience. And as I got older, and learned about what birth is for most people, I was like, 
whoa, really? Like you can't even move around? You mean you can't just like order takeout? You mean you can't yell and jump? Like Because I had seen women do these things, right? And mm-hmm. so I just, I didn't understand. And obviously now I do. I'm an adult. I understand that a lot of people do birth that way. But it is very interesting to me that so many um, women are in a position where they're somewhat cut off from their bodies during that experience. And there's no judgment here. People have to, it's up to the individual how they want to give birth. But I think as a culture, we're sort of cut off from it. Then we have sex and we are 100% cut off from that. It's unbelievable to me how few people are actually connecting with their partners. It's it's shocking, really. And, it, it, and I can look at my own life and I tell the story in my book of how that used to be me too. And I might have been a very sex positive, very sexual person, but my capacity to connect with my partners, my capacity to actually have sexual pleasure on a deeper level, I had no capacity until I started, you know, waking up thanks to meditation. So we're cut off from birth, we're cut off from sex, and then death, we don't even want to think about it. We do all day, every day, we do things to avoid that reality, which is a reality, which will happen to all of us, which happens to everything. And so I think as a culture, we're actually pretty cut off from the three main human things. (laughs) And uh, I think we'd probably be a lot happier and healthier if we were all thinking about and talking about this stuff every day. And I think, I mean, so back to religion, I think that was one of those main things that religion did was teach people how to die it didn't it wasn't very good with the sex part but it definitely i think the the lesson of jesus teach people how to die uh yeah but most people don't want to talk about it yeah. <laughs> so so it may be i mean it may be in our mythology right but there are i just so many people are just totally avoiding that reality even though it's it's there's there's like religious teaching on it like buddhists they really talk about death and i would say people who are serious buddhist practitioners are probably pretty in touch with it but even there it's interesting when i teach and i talk about death or i talk about sex people get a combination of really excited and really mad and really offended and really curious. The room will just light up when I bring up either of those topics. It'll light up in all kinds of ways, um, which tells me that people aren't getting enough of that kind of conversation. Mm. Well, let's talk about meditation, because even though the surface of your book is sex, it the the underside the the thing that informs the good sex is meditation mindfulness you know what is meditation you know how did you learn it and how should one practice it hmm well the short answer because <laughs> uh, <laughs> i wrote a whole book and i'm gonna write like five more or so but i'll give you the short answer um When I was uh, really young i don't know how young but very young my mom taught me about meditation And I would ask her to do like visualizations with me where she would like talk about, okay, now you're on a beach and you're walking in the sand and things like that. And I really loved it. There's actually a photo of me at at age six. I think it was my sixth birthday. And what I wanted us to do was all stand in a circle, close our eyes and meditate. And there's a picture of me standing between my grandparents in a Mickey Mouse sweatshirt uh, meditating. And so it was always in me. Um, but as I grew up and 
there were the challenges of life and there was a lot of trauma and I had a very tumultuous childhood and I was on my own very, very young at 14. I got really far away from that part of myself and I would only kind of dip into it when things were really bad. But then in 2007, um, I got sober and I ended a dysfunctional, abusive, unhealthy relationship and I started meditating. And at first I was just, you know, reading some Pema Chodron books and trying to figure out how to make my mind turn off. And then not long after that, I met Michael W. Taft, who's a, a wonderful meditation teacher and a dear friend. He wrote the book called The Mindful Geek. Um, he introduced me to this style of meditation, which uh, traditionally is called Vipassana. Uh, he introduced me to the style that uh, Shinzen Young had uh, created. And basically what it was is you could meditate on your thoughts. You did not have to quiet your mind. And that was a huge liberating experience for me because I thought, oh, I can't meditate because my mind's too noisy, which is what most people think. But actually you can sit down and you can focus your attention on the area where the mental talk or mental images are arising and actually observe them, witness them. Don't try to quiet them or turn them off. Just watch how they bubble up and then they vanish and they bubble up and they vanish. Get interested in the, the texture and the flow of the words and the images and witness it. And eventually you can sit there and watch and listen as if there's all these movies playing and all these people talking and you're not part of it. You're standing outside of it, observing it. And you can do the same thing with emotions. And we work with emotions as uh, sensations in the body. And when you learn to separate the mind, the thoughts, not turn it off, but separate from the emotions, then that tangle of self which can get really loud right before you have an anxiety attack or right before you get really mad at your partner, the thoughts and the emotions can get all tangled and then you do or say something that maybe you wish you hadn't later. But if you can separate out those strands of experience, the mind and the emotional body, then you have a superpower <laughs> because you're able, to, you're able to witness the arising and passing of self and decide what part of it you want to engage with and what part of it are you going to just let come and go now there's lots of forms of meditation do, do these are they all valid and they just speak to different modes of being in people or do you think some are actually better than others or what are your thoughts about that I don't think there's better than others. Uh, what I would say is if you find a teacher who says this is the way and this is the only way, you should calmly turn around and walk away <laughs> because, because that's a sign that there's some. this is not a teacher you want to work with. I encourage people to, uh, to, as the Buddha says, be a lamp unto yourself. Find your own path. Find what works for you. Um, I think that it's helpful to have a practice that you can use in daily life. And so the practice I'm describing and many of the others that are outlined in the book can be used in daily life. You don't just have to do them while you're sitting and meditating. And I think that can be really helpful because it's one thing if you can sit down on your cushion and transcend everything for 30 minutes or 10 minutes. But then when you get in your car and someone pulls in front of you, cuts you off, you start screaming and giving them the finger, right? Like you, there needs to be some, um, 
it needs to connect to what's happening during your day as well. And so a mindfulness practice, mindfulness of thought and emotion, mindfulness of relaxation, being able to find something that feels good in the body. These practices are really helpful to just navigate life. With that said, mantra practice is great, TM, Vedic meditation, um, uh, chanting, whatever you want to do, find what works for you and you'll know it's working because you'll, your relationships will start to get better. You'll start to be more clear on what you, what you really want to do with your life. What's really important to you. You'll, you'll find that you don't get stressed out as easy. You'll, you'll, um, you'll be able to sleep better. All of these things though, sometimes when meditation is working, things can get harder first because we start to become aware of all the areas where we've been unconscious, all the areas where we haven't been loving to ourselves, all the areas where we've been holding ourselves back or, or where we've been holding down trauma. A lot of people come in contact with their unresolved trauma and grief when they start meditating. So that might be the case for you, but down the line, it will get better. You just need to have teachers and lots of good support to work through that stuff. What does your daily meditation practice look like? Well, at this point, my daily meditation practice is just sitting. I don't really do anything. I just sit there um, because I think all techniques eventually lead to doing nothing. Um, but I practiced this uh focus on self-meditation, the observation of thought and emotion for so long and so consistently that that happens automatically for me. So if I'm, it's very rare that I get caught in a thought or an emotional state. It happens. But even when it happens, there's a lot of space around it and I'm fully aware. I'm like, oh yeah, look, I'm deciding to hang out with this and feel crappy for a little while. It's not very often that I get caught by surprise in a state of, of mental and emotional um, de uh, um, despair or something. Um, and that's just because I practiced. Just like I'd be really good at the piano if I ever practiced, I'm really good at at seeing the self arise and pass and not taking it personally. And so when you practice something long enough, it, it gets easier. So my kind of daily in life practice is to just let the meditation do its own work because I've already, um, created the, uh, the fertile soil for it to do it. Is it, is it something you do multiple times or one time? Is it morning or evening or, and what about a time commitment? Yeah. So for me at this point, um, it's all very loose. Um, I don't have a specific time. I don't have a specific amount because I'm, I'm, I teach a lot too. So I'm getting a lot of meditation while I'm teaching, uh -huh. um, as well, because I would say I, I have even deeper, more profound meditations when I'm working with others, because, you know, that connection with another human is, is powerful and going on that trip with another human is, is, is very special. Um, but yeah, my own practice is pretty loose, you know? There was a time that I um, meditated like every day for two hours and um, was very, very consistent and rigid with my practice. And that's just not what it looks like today. With that said, Friday, more, Friday afternoon, I start a 35-day silent self-led meditation retreat in Massachusetts at um, the Insight Meditation Society's Forest Refuge. So it's loose and I'm going to meditate for 35 days in silence on my own. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Huh. And so have you done something like that before? The longest I've done is two weeks. 
I've done a lot of 10 day retreats over the years. Um, I try to go on a retreat, at least one retreat every year. The last few years, um, I've been writing a book, making a feature film and doing a lot of other stuff. And I've been, um, dealing with health issues. So it hasn't been, um, possible for me to go on retreat for almost two years. Um, I felt like I really needed the downtime. My brain just needed a rest. It's been a very productive couple of years and also a very physically painful couple of years. And, um, and so this is a time for me to really just unplug. There'll be no internet. There'll be no phone. Um, I'll barely talk to or see anybody except when I go to eat, um, at the dining hall. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really just a time for me to rest and to dive into my practice in a deep way. Hmm. Okay. So that's, that's you. What about your students? Someone's brand new to you. I want to learn about meditation. You know, what do you initially recommend? I recommend a minimum of 10 minutes a day. Um, I generally start folks off with either the focus on self-meditation, which is the observation of thought and emotion, or I start them off with something I call rest and relax or positivity boost. Now, these techniques are really helpful for people who are dealing with trauma or who are a lot of anxiety or anything challenging like that. Um, it gives them a real nice container and foundation with which to then work with things like focus on self. But it's also very tailored to the individual. Even in my classes, I want a suggestion I make to one person might not be the right suggestion for someone else. I'm not a one size fits all sort of teacher and I don't have 10 steps to awakening. It's just, (laughs) just, you know, it's like, it's really just going to depend. Now a marketing person would tell me, oh, you need to you know, create this, this program where they're going to do these things and then they're going to be at this level because then people want to pay. And I'm just like, no, that's not what I'm doing. I am not selling awakening. I'm not selling, not necessarily selling good sex. I'm inviting you to explore possibility. And that's going to look different for different people. But I do ask that my students meditate at least 10 minutes a day and that they bring their practice into life as well. When you said positivity boost, I think there, that may be the term or it's something similar. When you're in a relation, you described being in a relationship where it seems like you're questioning whether or not the relationship makes sense, but there's some negativity. And mm-hmm. so then you decided to respond to everything with positivity for two weeks or something and then to see how that would change the dynamic. Could you... Do I know sure. what I'm talking about here? Yeah, yeah, you, you totally do. Yeah, it's called the Just Be Nice campaign. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, it was actually three months the first time I did it. And it showed me so much. One of the one of the biggest things it showed me was that most of the things I was getting bent out of shape about really were not a big deal and kind of had nothing to do with my partner. There were things that I could just sort out myself. And it also showed me the things that actually really were uh, a true concern for me in the relationship. So it gave me a lot of clarity. Um, my partner was a lot happier during that time. <laughs> and and what I did is I just kept re-upping and I continue to do that. I just, I do my best to practice the Just Be Nice campaign um, every day. Um, but for someone who's in the situation of should I stay or should I go, setting a two-week limit of just being nice. So basically what that means is no matter what's going on in the relationship, 
day to day, you are striving to just be nice. And so if you have a problem with the relationship, you take it elsewhere. You take it to your therapist, to your friends, to your support group. You take it into the bathroom and silently scream into your hands, (laughs) whatever you need to do so that you don't bring negativity and anger to the relationship. Now, obviously there's caveats. If you're in an abusive relationship where someone is harming you physically, emotionally, psychologically, my suggestion is you leave their relationship. Um, now, obviously not everybody does that. I was in abusive relationships that I didn't leave. I don't know quite how this campaign, Just Be Nice campaign works in a situation like that. But I will say that ultimately p- an important part of the Just Be Nice campaign is that you are working on yourself. Your focus is on yourself about on how you can be a healthier, happier person and a better partner, whether that's a better partner to someone else in the future or to your current partner. And when you have the focus on yourself in that way, um, it, it's you start to get um, you just start to get really clear. Things just get really clear, and you're doing your own work, so you're growing. And one of three things will happen: your partner will do the work too, and you'll grow together and stay together. Your partner will do the work too but you won't grow together and you won't stay together. You'll grow in different directions or three, your partner will not do the work. You will do the work and you will grow out of the relationship easily because water meets its own level. Hmm. Well, so your book is interesting in that there's an audio version available too. And so in that respect, it's kind of a twofer because you get the book, but then you can tell that you're a spiritual teacher because you read the book yourself, and so all your tips are kind of delivered in a way that seems to me that you might to students. And so yeah, yeah, I'm just I would say curious so. about the writing process, about how if you actually wrote those down, or did you uh, dictate them and take them down that way? Like the the, the difference between teacher slash writer, and 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 tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about your writing practice. Sure, sure. So. This book is very much a merging of teacher and writer. Uh, I, I do my best to bring all myself together when I work, whether that's writing or acting or directing or whatever I'm doing. I try to really allow all of these aspects of self to, to merge because I think that's when I'm at my best. And so with the writing process, I really just allowed myself to um, let the writing show me what it wanted to be based on allowing the selves to merge. Um, One of the things that I found most helpful for actually finishing the book was to give myself a four-hour chunk of time, and I would write for 50 minutes. I would time it, and during those 50 minutes, I would not do anything else, no internet, no Facebook, and even if I didn't write a word, I would sit there in front of my computer until the 50 minutes were up. Then I would take a 10-minute break, then I would come back and do another 50 minutes. And I would do that throughout the day. I found that really, really helpful. Um, with this book, it was kind of, e- I hate to say it, but it was kind of easy to write because um, I didn't have to do a lot of research. I, I really was just going based on m- myself as a teacher, working with students over the years, and my own story of sexuality, my sexual awakening. And so I know that probably the next book is going to involve a lot more research and it'll be harder to write. But this one, um, this one came out pretty, pretty easily once I, once I sat down and really did it. Um, but I do have something to share about the audiobook recording if you'd care to hear. Sure. Of course. And I, I feel like it's important actually when we come to the, um, 
topic of consent, which is where we started. Um, well, and I'd like to end there too, but can, <laughs> go ahead and tell us <laughs> tell us the story. Great. <laughs> so I was recording the audiobook, and I was in the in the in the booth, and I got to chapter. What chapter is it? I can't remember which chapter, but the chapter is the safe sex chapter. I think it's safe sex is good sex. And, um, and in the safe sex chapter, I talk about consent and I say, this is the most, one of the most important parts of safe sex is, is consent. And I tell a story of how, when I was 14, I was on LSD, I was high, I was drunk that a a 20 something year old guy had sex with me. And I then go on to say that I don't consider myself a rape victim, though I know that maybe some people would given the same circumstance and it's up to everyone to to determine their own story. And so I'm reading this part of the book in the booth. And this is, this is, I think this is, yeah, this is before the Me Too movement. It's before Harvey Weinstein. And I'm reading it and I can't get through that section. And I start crying and I have to stop. I have to pause with the producer and I need to just cry for a while. And I'm like, oh my goodness. I had no idea I felt that way. I was like, I don't know if this part of the book is true anymore. Huh. I think that I think that might have been rape. And then I kind of like, I kind of just, and then I had to get back to work and finish recording the book. And I mentioned it to my partner and he's like, oh, wow, that's, that's interesting. And then I sort of just forget about it a little bit, not forget about it, but just sort of like, oh, well, I'll look at that later. Then the Me Too movement happened and I told my story, but I still didn't call it rape. And, um, People responded to my post with all this compassion and love, and I'm so sorry that happened to you. I was like, oh, wow, maybe this is is rape. I thought it again. Then um, the Kevin Spacey stuff happened, and um, I was a big Kevin Spacey fan, so I was, of course, um, really sad to, to hear it. And I didn't, I don't like reading a lot of news. I just like to be somewhat um, educated, but I don't like to fill my head with it. But I was drawn to this one article and I, I started reading it. And this is a guy who, when he was 14 and Kevin Spacey was in his twenties, had a, had a sexual relationship with Kevin Spacey. And he tells that when he was 14, Kevin Spacey said, um, I, I've been drawn to you since you were 12 but you were too young then. And the guy kind of laughs in the interview and he says, yeah, what, 14's not too young? And then he goes on to just tell my entire story. And the guy that raped me when I was 14, when I was completely incapacitated, and all I remember was asking for a condom and him not using one, he said the same thing to me. He said, I, I've been drawn to you since you were 12. And I remember being 12 and loving the attention. And I remember being 14 and being so happy that he was finally going to go there. And it's just so complex. And it took all these years. And it took the it took Trump. And it took the Me Too movement. And it took all these people in Hollywood and in other parts of the world who are um, being exposed for me to finally recognize that that was rape. And... It, this story is really important to me because that's who I am as a spiritual teacher. I'm a spiritual teacher who is willing to be humbled every day, who's willing to learn something new every day. That's the kind of teacher I want to be. And so as humbling and sort of uh, 
as as hard and, and challenging as it is to to come to this realization so many years later, I feel incredibly grateful that I did. Well, over the weekend at the New Yorker, there a story went viral. It's called Cat Person, and it's a work of fiction. But basically, it's your story where it's a young girl and an older guy. And I would just like the 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 crux of the the story is this idea of consent and when mm-hmm. when should consent be given and can you stop mid sexual encounter and and say you know what this is done we don't need to go forward um but could mm-hmm. you as a as a closing explain the difference between no means no which is what you know the message was in maybe the 80s and 90s versus mm-hmm. yes means yes or Fuck yes, as you said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No means no leaves leaves out a whole lot. <laughs> it's like the, you can't say no if you're 14 and on LSD and drunk and high. Like, or maybe I did. Who knows? Who knows? Because I don't remember. Um, you 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 can't say no. Um, you know, if you're in a situation where someone's got some sort of huge power over you, you might, you know, in a big power differential, you might feel that you can't say no. And so the, the no means no is just, it just doesn't work anymore. Yes means yes is every step along the way. And I think I tell this story in the book that there was a woman not that long ago that I was having a sexual encounter with. And I remembered from the time before that she didn't want to do much. She wasn't, you know, she kind of just wanted to kiss and that was totally fine with me. So this time I got the sense that she wanted to do more, but I literally asked every step of the way, is it okay if I do this? Is it okay if I do this? Is it okay if I do this? And we ended up having sex, but it was so consensual. It was amazing. Um, And I don't, I'm not saying everybody needs to, you know, ask every step along the way unless that's the appropriate thing. But I do think that um, that we need to start by loving ourselves enough to know that we deserve to be treated with kindness and respect. Love ourselves enough to be able to say no or yes, depending on what we want or don't want. And it starts there. You know, obviously, if someone jumps you in an alley, it's not about your lack of self-love. It's about this is a very sick individual. But in a relationship, there's all kinds of ways that we have non-consensual sex, even with long-term partners. And we just we aren't in touch with ourselves enough to know what we really want and don't want. And so it starts there with this journey of, of self-love and self-discovery, I think. Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. You've been listening to Jessica Graham on 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com. Check out her work at her website, yourwildawakening.com. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests, check out past shows, or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast, check out others, as currently all of the SyncBook Radio archives are free. We also feature a great search engine to help you find what you need. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com. Thanks so much, and I invite you to swim until you can't see the shore. The salute at the threshold of the North Sea of my mind. And a nod to the board and that drove me here To face the tide and swim I swim 
Marker 